Welcome to Broad Gauge Gossips, the podcast where you can learn about the faculty of the Department of Military History in the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, Department of Defense, or U.S. Government. Hello, we are here with Dr. Cameron Zinsu, Assistant Professor of Military History at the Department of Military History at the Command and General Staff College. Welcome, Dr. Zinsu. Hey, good morning, Dr. Abel. Thanks for having me on this morning. Yeah, let's start by uh, talking about your background in education. Yeah, well, I'm from Fort Worth, Texas, born and, born and raised, you know, Texas forever. I attended the University of North Texas for both my bachelor's and my master's degree. And then I went over to Mississippi State for my doctorate. Um, spent several years over there uh, getting finishing up and I, I graduated this past year in April so newly newly minted as they say okay and I believe you spent some time at High Point University as well yeah I did uh, I before I came to CGSE I was a visiting instructor of history at High Point University working with uh, Dr. Rick Schneid uh, the, one of the preeminent Napoleonic historians as you well know very much so Rick is a, Rick is a good friend so uh, tell me about your research and your areas of interest. Yeah, so as you also well know as a historian of France yourself, I dabble quite a bit in French history. I study uh, daily life in southern France during the Second World War. Uh, my dissertation particularly focused around the town of Montélimar, and I looked at questions of occupation, requisitions, and citizenship, and, and how uh, those events and factors changed over time and meant different things to the people living in the town. So for instance, when we typically think of France in the Second World War, we think of the German occupation of France from 1940 to 1941. Well, in Montélimar, for instance, the Germans were only in the city for 11 months out of the entire war. And so what I look at are uh, kind of the laws and requisitions that were in place over the course and duration of the war that started with the end of the French Third Republic and extended beyond the end of the war, but I finished my work at the end of the war. <clears throat> and what I find is that not only does what requisitions mean to civilians change, right? At first they say, this is part of my patriotic duty. And then later they say, hey, we're not fighting, so why are you still taking things from me? And then it's, hey, I need to live. Please don't take my last cow. Please don't take the car I need to get to work. Um, and these are just things that get exacerbated over time. Um, but in Montelimar, for instance, there are many different governments, right? So it's not just, hey, my things are disappearing. It's, hey, why are the Italians taking my things? Hey, why is Vichy taking my things? Why are the Americans taking my things? And, you know, that's pretty much what my, my research looks at, all of these various com combinations of factors. And ultimately, I argued and concluded in my dissertation that, uh, Civilians lived under a period of occupation throughout the duration of the war. Uh, that's a pretty loaded term, so you know that's for I guess more niche circles for me to expound upon that. But in summation, that's what I do. Okay, very good. When when we think of World War II, and when kind of the average history buff thinks of World War II, we tend to focus on the you know the the Normandy landings across to the Rhine. So how does your research in the South around Operation Dragoon before and after, how does that fit into the wider picture of World War II in France? Yeah, thanks for asking that question. My 
Masters dealt a lot with Operation Dragoon, the operational strategic debate around it. Um, after I conclude my first book, which I just received a contract from, from the University or University Press of Kansas, uh, my second book is going to be on Operation Dragoon. Uh, and Dragoon, for me, actually acts as a hinge. If you think of a swinging door between the Mediterranean to Normandy, it's an operation that's planning occurred in the Mediterranean theater of war, but whose exec and execution initially begins in the Mediterranean, but then ends up under Eisenhower. And so it's a literal kind of shift, the embodiment of the shift from Italy to France. It's also one of the most contentious operations, uh, especially during the planning stages. Uh, the British definitely didn't want it. The Americans definitely wanted it. In the end, the Americans won out, but it puts severe strain on the Anglo-American alliance in ways that debates over Normandy didn't do and lots of other operations didn't do. And I incorporate it in my current research um, because during Operation Dragoon there was a battle at Montelimar, the Battle of Montelimar, fought between August 21st, August 30th, 1944. Um, and in it, I kind of talk about how, right, these questions of occupation and requisitions they kind of take, you know, a backseat to, you know, hey, I hope this shell doesn't blow me up. I'd really like to live the next week. Uh, right? That's definitely a more pressing concern. Um, and also, so the kinds of established norms that occurred between, you know, the governing authority and civilians, right, those fall apart. And so what does life look like when you, right, you have a complete collapse in the function of society as, you know, soldiers are shooting at each other and blowing things up? Yeah, yeah, and, and that's an interesting area, right? So we're not in Paris, we're not near the center, we're not near the government. The, the people who are dealing with this, we understand that there are practical issues, right? Mm -hmm. um, but what are their politics like in this area that kind of straddles the, you know, the Riviera, Italy? They may not be Vichy loyalists, but they may not have been, you know, um, Third Republic loyalists either. So what are the, what's the average kind of person in the south of France's politics during this period? Yeah, so there's a pretty good mix, actually, that, that's going on. Um, the mayor of Montelimar, he was the mayor, Edouard Deladier, I mean, Edouard Tardieu, not Deladier. Not Deladier. No, no, else. right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because... There are a lot of Edouards and there are a lot of Deladiers and a lot of Tar there are a lot of Tardieus and a lot of Edouards, and so sometimes I, I'm always going. No, I'm, so, I'm with you. Yeah, Edouard Tardieu. He was the mayor of Montelimar from 1935 to 1944. Okay. So he comes in as a socialist, uh, and when the when France surrenders to Germany and Vichy takes over. Uh, you know, in my research, I, f I find a document in in which at the department level they say, you know, the government. And Montelimar, they're they're favorable, right? They're they're moderate. He's not going to rock the boat. He'll he'll uh, uh, tow the he'll tow the the line. And so in my in my research, what I what I find at least you know at the municipal level in Montelimar is that not just Tardieu, but also much of the municipal council, um, they kind of take the attitude and approach the much the pragmatist approach. They're a lot less ideologically driven and more practically driven. Uh, Tardieu thinks, how can I do my best to service the citizens of, of Montelimar? 
you know, there's this relationship in France in which, you know, the mayor seen as kind of the patrio father figure of the community. And, and I, I find in my research, Chardieu very much embodies that. He, he's in many ways caught between the worst of both worlds. He has to implement this new right-wing authoritarian kind of... National revolution. Right, exactly. Yeah. And at the same time, he's like, you know, my people need bread. Right. And and so how do you answer to those demands from above while also from below, to, you know, put a positive spin as you can on it? Um, as time progresses throughout the war, especially as um, Germany's uh, repress repressive policies in France escalate, you begin to see more of an expression uh from the people themselves in uh, opposing not just Vichy, but Italian and, and German uh, rule. And we really see this escalate after the Germans come into town in September 1943 after Italy surrenders. Um, that's when resistance attacks build. More people flee uh, to join the resistance. And as a result, you know, it's a pretty chaotic and honestly dangerous place to be the last nine months of, of the German occupation. There are arbitrary arrests, deportations, interrogations, murders. Mm -hmm. um, so it's uh, the politics kind of matter, but they're not center stage in the way that, you know, they're not of the same concern at the local level as they are at the national level, especially with things like the National Revolution getting right. implemented. Right, and I think we tend to focus on, on you know, these great periods of history, people sitting around and just talking about the high political issues. And I think what you're getting at is very important that, you know, sometimes it's just about a farmer and his cow, and it might be his last cow. Yeah, right. And, um, you know, it's this, whether or not, you know, it's an American or an Italian or a French official or soldier coming to take that cow, right? The the identity behind the uniform doesn't matter if you can't feed your family. Yeah, and, and this is also part of France, right, where kind of always resisted central authority, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's um, the greatest, I guess, center of resistance activity in France happens in the Trome, the area, the department that I, that I study in the summer of 1944. There's an entire German division that's battling mm -hmm. an entire, essentially, division-sized element of the resistance in, in June, July 1944. It gets, you know, very, very hectic. The, the Germans bring in bombers. Um, it, it's very much reminiscent of a, of a conflict you might have anticipated in Normandy. Right. Um, and, you know, it's a, kind of a tragedy uh, because these resistance members, they think like once the Allies land, like oh okay, we'll rise up, and the British who say you know we've been supporting you and your resistance efforts for the last two years, like all right, now's like the time to act. They'll fly in more planes, they'll find people, they'll do all these things, and essentially Churchill's like hands off, and that leaves them stranded, and they they unfortunately get wiped out. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, yeah, and a similar things happen in the north with the communists, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's, 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 you know, it's really not an exaggeration to say that every town in France had a different experience of liberation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what, what happens in Normandy isn't what's happening in southwest France or it's not happening in southeast France or central France, um, right? And, you know, 
the last people to be liberated in France aren't liberated until September, October 1944, long after, you know, previous parts of the country were. Yeah, those coastal cities that were, were held for a while, yeah. Yeah, so so zooming out a little bit, you, you're a World War II historian, and obviously this is a field that has lots of interest and lots of people working in it. Yeah. So what's, what's, what's exciting right now in World War II history and historiography? So right now, uh, Mike Nyberg, preeminent historian, just released a book on the United States diplomatic military relationship with Vichy France and kind of you know, pulls out and says, let's treat Vichy as more than just a German puppet. Let's treat Vichy as an independent state actor attempting to pursue its own interests and the United States interacting with this other state and seeing like, okay, what are our common interests? Where do we, what interests do we have aligned? Where do we diverge? And the British are wholeheartedly against Vichy the entire time. This causes a lot of consternation um, and friction with uh, the um, Anglo-American relationship over time, and so that that just came out last month. Um, I I've been uh, reading the first few pages, right? I've gone through the introduction, but it promises to be a really, really good and and, and, and thought-provoking book. There's another work that actually came out that actually touches quite a bit on uh, my own research. It's called Assassination in Vichy, and it's about the uh, assassination of Marx Dormoy was one of the Vichy 80 who, who voted down uh, the French Third Republic's vote to hand over power to Philippe Pétain and the, uh, the what would become the Vichy government. He's uh, arrested and he has in-house kind of arrest um, and a bomb blows him up in 1941. And so the book is actually about kind of his politics, why he was selected. He was uh, kind of spearheaded the effort to uh, suppress uh, nascent French fascism in the mid-1930s. And uh, the far right of France never forgot. And so the the book's kind of about that kind of longer history of a fractured France in the 1930s. it's really good um, and approaches kind of the topic in a way that I hadn't and don't. Um, so I, I appreciate that different perspective. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things I've run into as a fellow French historian is, especially in the 20th century, we kind of think of France only when it touches the United States or the Western mm-hmm. Allies, right? But, but you know, all of the, the, the research done over the last few decades on what was called Vichy Syndrome, right, where the French are still dealing with this now out of most of the living memories of people. Yeah. yeah. It sounds like there's been some some interesting new research in that direction. Yeah. Uh, you know, it is, <laughs> as a historian of France during the Second World War, that's always a pitfall you have to be aware of. Um, you know, the Vichy Syndrome, a lot of French people, like everyone's extended family fought in the resistance. Maybe. But they weren't, they didn't join the resistance until two weeks before liberation. Right, they were naphthalines. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, you know, to be fair, most people are, are were just trying to get by, and most people are just trying to get by, especially in a, the context of uh, great material deprivation. You do what you can for, for those in your life and, and around you. And so 
but you know that kind of living memory of people you know repress kind of not just the shame of the defeat but also right to then emphasize the terror that the Germans you know impose on the French which by is absolutely valid and right, most people had to interact with the German occupier in some way and that's not a good or bad thing that's just reality of the situation but attempting to divorce that from you know ideas of patriotism you know citizenship duty right yeah. you know everyone loves to villainize the Nazis well when you yeah. gotta be you gotta be for something too right you can't just be against something yeah exactly and so you know that's that's something that still gets teased out even you know today in in French politics so uh, you you have to tread carefully when conducting research because everyone wants to make sure you're producing the right kind of history and so it can be kind of difficult especially as an outsider an American to say like well yes I want to tell the quote-unquote right kind of history but that's not it's not going to be a history that you recognize and probably won't appreciate in the same way that most people will. Right, right, yeah, at a time of kind of fractured national consciousness and, and questions as what constitutes la patrie, this is a, these are issues that are still kind of sticky, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, even when I had my own research uh, in, in France, you know, people always wanted to, oh, well, you know, my uncle, he fought in the resistance and, you know, right. he told me this great story about blah, blah, blah. And like, oh, wow, that's so cool. And then you like you look through a file and you're like, oh, like that family, he definitely didn't do what he said he was going to do. Right. Or, right. Uh, he didn't do what he said he did. Right. Yeah. No, it's all very good. Uh, thank you for being with us here today, Dr. Zinsu. Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm around, so you know, I'm sure this won't be the last you you see of me. So thanks for, for having sure. me. On. Please be sure to check out our other podcast, A Confused Heap of Facts, where we sit down with military historians from the Department of Military History and special guests to talk about topics in military history.